Welcome back, everybody, to the Luke Beasley Show. It's so great to be with you on this Monday, another week of American politics ahead of us, quite the show ahead of us today. Quick programming note before we dive in, though. I am going to be taking, just giving you advance notice so you're prepared for it. Um, I'm going to be taking off Friday and then the following Monday, which I, as I've explained in the past, very much do not like taking days off from the show, but I've been convinced into taking a trip for my birthday that I'm very excited for. My birthday is tomorrow, uh, whoop, whoop. And so we'll need a little long weekend there to make that happen. Hopefully everyone is all right with that. And then of course I'll be back the following Tuesday, but a bunch of shows before then. So let's dive into this one. We've heard from Republicans and we've talked a good bit about this talking point of uh, the IRS extra funding that was included in the Inflation Reduction Act is an attempt to go after MAGA. You've probably heard the phrase a bunch of times, 87,000 IRS agents, Biden is going to send these agents to the homes of MAGA and harass them. Something to that effect. Well, I have for you today the reality. What actually is getting done because of this policy that Biden pushed for, Democrats got through in the Inflation Reduction Act, which was enhanced uh, funding, increased funding to the IRS. You might remember during the negotiations over the debt ceiling, one of the things Kevin McCarthy got as a win in his column was decreasing a bit the funding that was going toward the IRS, which is absurd because of what I'm about to walk through. So. Take the talking point you've heard of 87,000 IRS uh, agents are going to come and harass MAGA. And then here's the reality. And it's another example of the juxtaposition between what often the Republican leaders say is reality and what actually is. So we'll look at this uh, through the lens of an Associated Press article that writes, the IRS is showcasing its new capability to aggressively audit high-income tax dodgers as it makes the case for sustained funding and tries to avert budget cuts sought by Republicans who want to gut the agency. And as a quick point of accuracy on the 87,000 IRS uh, agent talking point, I think if you add up all the totals of all the different positions that will be filled over the next number of years maybe that's where they got that figure but a lot of that is replacing people who are about to retire anyways and adding on top of that more staff members to the irs so uh, just a little bit of a note there continuing irs leaders said they collected 38 million dollars in delinquent taxes so this is just one example of one batch of wealthy people what they've been able to get just very recently uh, and it'll obviously be in the billions over the course of time for more than 175 high income taxpayers in the past few months. In one case, an individual had used money uh, owed to the government to buy a Maserati and a Bentley and roughly 100 high income people tried to get favorable tax treatment through Puerto Rico without meeting certain tax requirements. Many of those cases are expected to face criminal investigations. So when you take one case study, which is sort of what we're looking at, of Recently, 175 high-income taxpayers in the past few months, boom, $387 million that they're supposed to pay, they legally owe, but they're not paying, and instead they're paying that, <laughs> spending that money on Maseratis and Bentleys. And so it seems like one of the least controversial things you could possibly imagine. Get money from people who owe it by law, should be paying it, are avoiding paying it, and also they can afford to pay it because they're wealthy. It's not working class MAGA folks. It is very wealthy individuals of any 
political persuasion that are being targeted because of this extra funding, which is really good. And I will remind you that this is one of the few uh, bits of legislation that makes a profit. And if you allocate the billions that they allocated, we'll get to the particular figure in a moment, an increase, you get back an extra tax revenue more than you had to fund the IRS additionally in the first place, which again, seems completely not controversial, but the GOP's job is to oppose everything Biden does, even if it is really, really good. Uh, quote, it just shows you how much money is out there in delinquent taxes. And there are so many more cases for us to tackle, said new IRS commissioner, uh, Daniel Werfel, just four months into the job. There's just a significant opportunity there. And then it talks about how this indeed is because of the Inflation Reduction Act and is an example of work we expect to continue to focus on with IRA funding, the Inflation Reduction Act. And the agency was in line for an $80 billion infusion under the law, then they would make back more money. Uh, but that's vulnerable to cutbacks because of House Republicans. And uh, one of the first things they were trying to do when they got the majority in the House of Representatives was to defund the IRS and was to roll back the extra funding that President Biden and Democrats got in. And so I show this to you, number one, to say, hey, look at this good policy that's now finally being implemented and uh, we're starting, starting to see the effects of. And also these talking points, they come from somewhere and then they have some impact, if that makes sense. And so if Republicans got their way, yeah, it's a slogan they use to try to get votes, but then it actually would cause us to be missing out on tax dollars we could be spending on necessary programs uh, that people should be paying and they can afford to pay. And I'll make sure to uh, specify as we talk about this what I mean by that. The Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, gave specific instructions to IRS leadership saying don't increase audit rates on people making less than $400,000 a year. So when I say they can afford to pay the proper amount of taxes, it's true. And this is a little bit more, this is interesting too to me. Now the agency is trying to show the value of the Inflation Reduction Act funding for taxpayers as appropriation season closes in and to show the impact of its efforts to do more uh, to audit high income taxpayers. And last summer and then it talks about what i just said and actually the part that i was looking for is this irs said its workers answered three million more calls than in the last filing season cut wait times to three minutes from 28 and cleared the backlog of unprocessed 2022 tax returns that had no errors so they're making it a better experience interacting with the irs as individual taxpayers all around beneficial so why on earth do Republicans oppose it? And uh, I really think this serves as a great example of that reality of politics, not just playing a role in these conversations because of a cur of curse, of course it will, it's politics. We're gonna have people trying to brand effectively and get talking points out there and have the bumper stickers and oppose their political opponents. All of that makes sense. But when something just seems so clearly good, like handing more funding to an organization that you can say is supposed to go toward having the resources to audit people who are not paying what they owe and they happen to be very wealthy and you make the government a profit. How could you oppose that? That seems so clearly logical. And this is an example of politics 
being the only reason, the political gain being the only reason for the action. There isn't any ideological case for why this would be bad underlying the decision from Republicans to oppose it. We talked about a piece previously on the show from Axios titled 2024 House Majority Runs Through the Courts. And what it talks about is because whoever gets the majority after the 2024 election, Democrats or Republicans, it's going to be a narrow majority, most likely. And for that reason, and because right now we're seeing play out in courts in the rearview mirror and some that are coming up, very key decisions being made in courtrooms on congressional maps that could be depending on how courts decide to go on this is this state map too gerrymandered in an unconstitutional way or is it not in multiple states across the country that could be what pushes one party over the edge because that's deciding how many congressional spots will be available how gerrymandered they, they can be how advantageous they'll be to one party or the other and so now i have for you an example of this playing out and also it's notable because of how absurd the actions from Alabama Republicans are in regard to this story. So this is from Politico, Alabama's redistricting brawl rehashes bitter fight over voting rights. Apologies, it's getting cut off a little bit, but we'll proceed. A court ordered Alabama's legislature to redraw its congressional map to give black voters more power. Uh, I emphasize words strangely there. A court ordered Alabama's legislature, and then the legislature response, not unless we have to. The GOP-dominated legislature passed a map on Friday that disregarded a lower federal court's directive, one reinforced in June by the Supreme Court, that it should include two districts with a black voting age majority or something qu uh, quite close to it when it redraws its lines. The legislature, over the unified objections of Democrats, instead came up with a map that falls short of that with one narrowly black majority district and one with a black voting age population of just under 40%, even as Republicans argue they are in adherence. So what's going on here is a case was decided in a federal court, then reaffirmed by the Supreme Court, that the way Alabama had drawn its congressional lines was discriminatory toward black people because it didn't give them as much representation as a more fair map would give them. And so you're disproportionately taking away the voice within our democracy of black people in Alabama to such an extent that it's unconstitutional and violates the Voting Rights Act. And so that was decided then Alabama now has a chance to redraw the lines to make them in adherence with this court case. And they once again don't add that second majority black district and proceed with what is clearly a violation of this decision. And so hopefully after more legal challenges, which is kind of what reporting has been indicating, we'll see more litigation, but will they just violate that litigation? We'll have to see. But either way, this is an example of how much these decisions in court, and then I guess if the political parties adhere to the decisions, will play a role in the upcoming election. And uh, Simone Sanders broke this down nicely on MSNBC over the weekend. Last month, the Supreme Court handed down a surprise victory upholding Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Now, Section 2 prohibits any voting law or practice from abridging any citizen's right to vote on the basis of race or color. Well, the Supreme Court's ruling upheld a lower court's ruling that Alabama violated Section 2 of that Voting Rights Act by packing all of the state's black voters into just one congressional district. The Supreme Court ruling ordered Alabama to redraw its maps to include a second majority black district. 
but the Alabama state legislature seems determined not to comply. According to the democracy docket, there are currently more than 30 Section 2 cases being litigated across the country. Okay, and the Cook political report it has already shifted four races from solid R to toss-up after the Supreme Court decision. So here is what Democratic Congresswoman Terry Sewell, who represents Alabama's only majority black district, told me after the Supreme Court weighed in. The results of elections could be changed by this, but we must remember this is not about Democrats and Republicans. This is about minority representation, fair representation. But the state government in Alabama, it doesn't seem interested in fair representation. Yesterday afternoon, Alabama Governor Kay Ivey signed a new map into law, one that does not include a second black district. Absurd. According to Alabama Sorry. House Speaker Nathan Ledbetter, uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, you know, of the United States uh, House of Representatives, well, he actually reached out as the maps were being redrawn, and he expressed concerns about control of the House in 2024. Think about that, folks. As Republicans keep pushing conspiracy theories about the 2020 election being rigged against Republicans, some of them are actively working to dilute black voting power in Alabama and beyond. Like right. And for this election, this plays a huge role and is a huge conversation. But just in general, it's another reason why something like the For the People Act that was introduced a while back and is not going to get through unfortunately, that would get rid of partisan gerrymandering is so crucial. Because in some cases, this isn't even a purely political thing, even though a less gerrymandered America would be in the advantage of Democrats. But in certain areas, Democrats also use this, of course. Uh, we saw a case in New York that is now going to help Democrats because they're allowed to gerrymander their districts more. And in principle, it's bad. Obviously, I'm a little bit like, okay, if that helps, good for this next election. But in principle, it shouldn't be allowed across the board, and we should have fair representation and not these squiggly lines being drawn in such, in my opinion, um, broken and anti-democratic way. Donald Trump has been posting videos, ranting. He's been on a ranting rampage recently on his True Social account and as he gets in a worse and worse uh, situation legally and his legal cases heat up and he realizes that the evidence is so damning against him when it comes to the classified documents case and the others and then another upcoming indictment very soon he seems to be getting more unhinged more detached from reality and his videos even more outrageous and that's what i have here for you today more of his sweaty addresses to the people on True Social. And you can see here, he's going to talk about, it's really just a big whataboutism video, talk about how Biden should be getting charged and he's the biggest victim and all this different stuff. Take a look. Whatever happened to the Biden documents case? 20 times more documents than I have and even more than that. And I'm allowed to have under the Presidential Records Act, I'm allowed to have it because I was president, he wasn't. So we're trying to figure out you never hear anything. It so he'll refer to these numbers of thousands and thousands of documents. There was a small number of documents that Biden immediately turned over. I think when he says thousands and he mentions Chinatown and stuff, he's referring to just a bunch of records Biden's allowed to have and then just calculating that number and saying they were all sensitive national security classified documents, which they weren't. 
the small number that were classified, obviously, as we've talked about extensively, Biden immediately turned over, which Trump could have done too, and he would have been fine. We're trying to figure out, you never hear anything? It looks like they want to skate. You know, when it came out that he had documents all over the place, like in Chinatown, like in Delaware, uh, under the Corvette on the garage floor, everybody said, well, that's the end of the documents case against Trump. Right. So then the few classified documents he did have, he immediately turned them over. There was no willful retention, no obstruction, none of that that went on in Trump's case. This is really bad news. But the fact is, he is looking very bad, but he's not being charged under the so-called Espionage Act, which was never used before for a purpose like this. What about the classified documents he had in Chinatown and on his garage floor in Delaware by the Corvette? Let me once again clarify. If Trump had done what Biden did, and right when he came across the documents, realized they were classified, turned them over to federal authorities, we would not be having this conversation for a second. There would be no case against Trump for certain. Part of the reason we know that to be the case is after unlawfully keeping 15 boxes of documents for months and months and months, the ones he did voluntarily turn over, he's not being charged for. He's being charged for the one that after that, after he was supposed to turn over documents even beyond uh, the first batch he turned over, he did not. That's what he's being charged for. Not the 15 boxes he turned over after months of knowing that he had them um, and not turning them over. So if he had just done what Biden did, or probably even worse, he would be okay. It was that he went so far, and that's when it became as criminal as uh, we're seeing play out with the evidence. Take a look. Or at University of Pennsylvania, where they were being paid hundreds of millions of dollars. He wasn't being charged under the Espionage Act. He wasn't being charged, but they charged me under the Espionage Act. Hasn't been used before, ever. And I'm protected by the Presidential Records Act. You know, Biden has eight- False, 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 false. Why does he repeat that so many times? I'll say it again. He wasn't even in compliance with the Presidential Records Act. And also, he's not being charged under the Presidential Records Act. Stop bringing it up. 1,850 boxes in a certain location that he doesn't want to give up. Well, 1,850 boxes, that's probably more than anybody. Was Obama, Clinton, Bush, or any of the others charged? No, only Trump is charged because... You did things they didn't do, right. I'm illegally being targeted by them. Uh. We are illegally being targeted. You know, if I wasn't leading by so much, or if I wasn't running, if uh, I was just sort of taking it easy, none of this would happen. These are crooked, corrupt people. It's called- And the lights turned off in the back. Election interference, and we can't let this take down our country because our country is going to hell and we have to turn it around. This is a form of them cheating on the election, just like stuffing the ballot box or so many other things. Which didn't happen. It's called election interference, and we can't let it happen. Thank you. We'll get to a little bit more from a second video he put out in a bit, but even though, because he's so cartoonishly wrong and expresses himself in such an absurd way, it's easy to go, ha ha ha. But I have to remind all of us again, that this talk of it's election interference, they're stealing another election, it's like the ballot stuffing. Well, we saw what the last election lies led to, and he's trying to do that again. He's trying to put out lies about our elections because he's afraid that he's going to lose. And so 
in the buildup to it, and especially if he does indeed lose, we're going to be in a really dangerous place because of this type of rhetoric of it's the second round of this uh, election being stolen. And right now we have 63% of Republicans that believe the last election was illegitimate. So putting out that false, dangerous rhetoric once again is only going to lead to bad things. We don't know the severity of those bad things, but it can only do harm. And it is so irresponsible. But of course, he doesn't care about that because it's about him. And he's preparing kind of like he did in the build up to 2020 with the, oh, mail-in votes might cause fraud talking point. He's preparing to have a narrative ready, the foundation laid for why he loses in 2024, which hopefully will indeed happen. The losing, not the lies, but that definitely will happen uh, when it comes to the lies. A little bit more here from another video. I thought I would say that as the leading political opponent of crooked Joe Biden, getting indicted and arrested by sick government thugs would be my great honor. It's an honor because I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for our country to show how evil and sinister a place it has become. Make America great again. We're not going to let them get away with it. Thank you very much. Wow. What a hero. People think that. They see that and they think, wow, he's getting indicted for us. No, he's getting indicted for him, for the rule of law. I don't know. He's getting indicted because he violated laws, it seems. And now he's being held accountable for that, which is exactly what our system should do, no matter who it is. But this narrative, as I mentioned on a previous show or multiple previous shows, he is grifting his followers, they see those videos, they go to the link, they donate. And then he's turning around and while he's grifting them, convincing them that the grift is actually him being a hero. It's wacky. I also saw just as I was getting these videos prepared on his true social account, he re-truthed uh, a truth from the deranged former rock star Ted Nugent that said January 6th will be remembered as the day the government set up a staged riot to cover up the fact they certified a fraudulent election. So now Trump's endorsing that message too. Oh, the riot, it was staged by the FD, uh, FDI. <laughs> FBI, no evidence of that. And it was really just a choreographed attempt to take down Trump somehow. Which again, on that conspiracy theory, Please explain the reasoning. We're going to go and prevent the certification of the election of the win of the guy that we're on the side of Biden. We're going to try to prevent the certification of Biden's win to make Trump supporters look bad. And as I've said before, Trump and his movement don't need any help looking bad optically. We don't need a choreograph, a conspiracy riot to make that happen. And of course, Trump didn't even start with that narrative. It used to be, oh, they were just riled up members mad from my protest, but I, you know, am not to blame for it. And now it's, oh, actually, this was Antifa. And I know I don't, can't even keep track with Trump, but maybe he's toggled back and forth on that one too. When in reality, he was sitting, watching the television, reportedly felt good about the fact that people were willing to do this for him. It was an ego boost, but... Who cares about facts these days, especially within MAGA? Well, presidential candidate and governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, had another one of those really strange moments where he gets asked a question and just acts bizarre in response to it. Before we dive into this clip, 
I started doing this thing. This is just me responding to a comment now on the show. Um, I started doing this thing where I would lead stories about Ron DeSantis by listing all the different titles of DeSantis, the nicknames that Trump has given him, both behind the scenes reportedly and publicly. And so I would go, this story is about Ron DeSantis, DeSanctimonious, Meatball Ron, Tiny D, all those things, as a way to poke fun at the absurdity of Trump's nicknames and also because I'm not a fan of DeSantis. And someone was not happy with me and said it was me being childish. So I want to hear what you have to say. Is it funny to point out that Trump's such a child that he calls DeSantis all those things while also sort of trying to dig at DeSantis? Or is it me stooping to the level of Trump? Okay, we'll, we'll see what people have to say on that. But here's a moment from DeSantis who got asked about his low, low poll numbers and the fact that his presidential election is a disaster thus far, and this is what took place. Anybody else? Governor, why Utah today? Your poll numbers behind President Trump have been pretty substantially behind. Can you Not here. <laughs> no, I'm not nervous at all, huh? Now, look, I think at the end of the day... It's a state. It's a state by state uh, race, and so that's how we've set everything up. You know, we are we are focusing on Iowa, New Hampshire, South. We'll get to the facts on polling in a moment. Carolina, and then as we get into Super Tuesday, which of course is um, is Utah, and that really requires being on the ground. It requires building out the organization, and we're doing that, and and we're doing that better than anybody is doing that right now. Uh, we really, uh, I think most of you saw last Friday, we were in Iowa for the Family Leader Summit. That really was the kickoff to the caucus season. And so now people are starting to, to pay more attention to it. I can. So that talking point of it's a state by state race, I guess would make sense if you were polling really well in the early primary states or polling okay and not nationally. And you're saying, listen, we're working on the early states. We got to go pull numbers there. We'll worry about the later states in the schedule as we get closer to those. But he's not polling that well in the early primary states. And I saw a brutal Fox News report on a poll they had done from Iowa and South Carolina, two of those early primary states uh, and caucus states. And it's not looking good for DeSantis. If you remember, he in some polls, state by state, would lead or be right tied with Trump at some point before he even announced. And it was stunning, and it seemed like maybe DeSantis could defeat Trump. Now, this is what the numbers look like for DeSantis. As he's gotten more visibility, he's become less popular. And today, new polls from Fox Business lay out where the GOP race for the White House stands in two key states. So let's get straight to it. First to Iowa and the first in the nation caucuses. In a survey of Iowa Republicans, former President Trump leads by 30 points among likely caucus goers, followed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 16 percent and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott at 11 percent. And in South Carolina, the former president leads by more than 30 points with the state's former governor at 14 percent. Nikki Haley, Governor DeSantis at 13% and the state's current Senator Tim Scott at 10%. Of course, a lot can happen between now and the debates and certainly between now and the first primary contest of uh, 24. And yeah, so to look at this again, uh, broken down here by the recount, you have Trump at 46, DeSantis 16, Scott 11, Ramaswamy 6, Haley 5. 
and then and that's Iowa and South Carolina. You have Trump at forty-eight, Haley fourteen, DeSantis is third place now. Nikki Haley is winning in her home state. DeSantis is third, thirteen points, which I, I'll continue to say. It's not that we. Let me put it this way. It is fun to see DeSantis fail, not because we're excited about Trump being the nominee. Both options, horrible. But it's just fun to see DeSantis, because of how dangerous he is, fail. And then it's also terrifying to think that none of the candidates, even the more moderate ones, the Chris Christie's, none of them clearly stand a chance against Trump. And that's an indictment of even though most of the options would be also awful, it's an indictment of the modern state of the GOP that MAGA has this type of hold over the party and doesn't want to leave Trump's side, even with all the indictments, even with the anti-democratic effort to overturn a free and fair election, all of it, he doesn't lose the support of a big part of the party. And so we will so we can stay sane, get joy out of some things, like walk, watching the guy who has centered his whole campaign about um, around fighting back against wokeness, and he's a warrior, he's gonna go after Disney and Bud Light. Seeing him fail is satisfying and it is good. But is it hopeful because of who's doing well? That's uh, another conversation. But let's just relish in this moment of DeSantis, really, as he gets more known, not doing very well at least in the polls and as was noted by the fox news anchor things can change a lot can change but as i've said in the past that's so applicable when talking about most primaries you're months out and you still have a lot of time and a lot of things can be shaken up you look at how the polling change in other primary settings that's totally the case but here people know trump and if we haven't seen him budge from that strong first place spot in the polls after everything that's happened thus far what's going to change it now that's the difference because normally you have more unfamiliar at least in a presidential candidate form candidates so then a lot can change as voters get a sense of the different options but here we've seen everything change we've seen more people jump in we've seen different types of candidates jump in we've seen trump being indicted a bunch of times we've seen enough to know he's going to end up being the nominee and that's Horrifying, but hopefully Biden will indeed beat him. Mike Pence appeared on CNN with Dana Bash to discuss a number of different things. He's obviously running for president. And one moment caught my eye that was so, it was just taking logic and picture logic being a person. And then just, this is what Mike Pence is doing, brutally abusing it um, or abusing this hypothetical logic person. <laughs> Okay, went off the rails there. And uh, Mike Pence just absolutely inhumanely treated logic in this clip I'm gonna show you. Take a look. Last question about this, because this is so personal to you. And when I say this, I talk, I'm talking about the potential for violence. Uh, Donald Trump said this week, uh, talked about how his supporters might react if he is charged and faces potential jail time. I think it's a very dangerous thing to mm -hmm. even talk about okay. uh, because we do have a tremendously passionate group of voters, much more passion than they had in 2020 and much more passion than they had in 2016. I think uh, it would be very dangerous. So there he's getting asked about the fact that Trump in talking about to be accurate, 
when I went and watched that audio clip, still incredibly dangerous. He was talking about pretrial detention, being jailed uh, in preparation for the trial and the buildup to it. And then saying that my passionate followers will make things dangerous. It, it's just a threat. He's just threatening. It is so incredibly dangerous. He is the danger because of that type of rhetoric, not some force outside of his control, but continuing. Does that kind of rhetoric worry you? Well, it, it doesn't worry me because I have, uh, I have more confidence in the American people and in the people in our movement. Look, uh, it was one of the things that infuriated me on January 6th with, with what I saw, people ransacking the Capitol and the... So we'll watch more of this, but so far you have him getting asked about a guy who previously provoked people into violence now provoking people it seems again into a situation that could get violent or playing coy with the idea i don't know yeah provoking and he says no i'm not concerned and that's not dangerous language because i have faith in the american people which sounds good on a bumper sticker but what does that mean when you're talking about a guy who already did the thing that we're scared about happening again group of Americans did the thing that then he brings up, which makes the logical situation he's in even more absurd because he points to the very event that disproves what he's saying. Hey, you know how your former boss said a bunch of things, said a bunch of lies, and people ended up attacking the Capitol? Yeah, now he's saying a bunch of things, saying a bunch of lies. Are you scared that might happen again? No, because I have faith in the American people, and that's part of why I was sad when they got violent, but they're not going to get violent again because I have faith in them, and that's why I was sad when they got violent. Whoa, <laughs> brain malfunction. Uh, engaging in violence against law enforcement officers, Dan. I just, uh, the, 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 I would say not, not just the majority, but the, virtually everyone in our movement are the kind of Americans who love this country, are patriotic or are law and order people who would never have done anything like that there or anywhere else. But you just brought up January 6th. They did it, Mike, and you were being threatened. They were chanting, hang Mike Pence. What? And then you reference that event to prove a point about how people won't do something like that. The same uh, movement being referred to and the same guy leading the movement being referred to. And you're referencing those two things to prove that the thing they did won't happen. I need a glass of water. <laughs> so I don't. No, I, don't, I have more confidence in the American people than that. I, I hear, I hear my former running mate's frustration uh, in his voice, but uh, uh, but uh, I, I'm sure uh, the American people uh, will respond in our movement mm -hmm. in a way that will express, uh, as they have every right to, uh, uh, under the First Amendment, to express concerns that they have about what they perceive to be unequal treatment of the law. But I I'll say it again. But Michael Pence, if that's his full name, is the archetype for a politician made in a lab. <laughs> you know, Dana, uh, I don't know what I'm saying, really, because I have faith in the people that did the bad things, that they won't do the bad things. Uh, again, thank you. Mike Pence for America. Be a real <laughs> expressive human. Uh, wacky. So there's that. Whatever that was, that word salad, gobbledygook. Uh, 
of an answer. <laughs> and this is why people say Mike Pence is such a coward and no longer can he be respect. The amount of respect that he got from liberals for doing the correct thing on January 6th, absolutely. It was his constitutional duty, but he did it. Good. Didn't go along with his foreign boss. Good. But he's lost all the respect that he sort of got for doing that because he's followed that up with just a moment of cowardice after a moment of cowardice. And it's hard to unsee that. And that's what he will be, in my mind, remembered for. Because not only was he not at all critical enough of Trump after January 6th, where Trump threatened his life and sat back and didn't do anything, but also he has moments like this. He just falls in line and doesn't speak out against Trump's legal troubles, meaning he doesn't admit that indeed Trump's not a victim of political persecution, but instead is being held accountable, uh, accountable for under the law, his violations of the law. And stuff like that, where he doesn't want to clearly say, obviously that's worrying, dangerous language, and he shouldn't say that. He shouldn't say, it'd be really dangerous if I ended up in jail because of my passionate followers. Come on, be honest. For a second, Mike Pence, and uh, have the correct analysis on that. Well, now we have an actual stain on the presidency, a scar on the presidency of Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. And Fox News is gonna tell us about it. You know, they brought up all these different things. They told us that woke was the biggest threat and Biden was gonna shove it down our throat. They warned us that we're now in a communist country. They've been doing good reporting, but now they broke a real story, a real groundbreaker, uh, Biden wore some shoes that they didn't like. You know, Dagan, when it comes to picking on footwear and all that, I mean, I, I do kind of just give a yawn to all of it. We, we often change our footwear. I've broken my ankle in the last three years. <laughs> yeah, things change. But, you know, when you look at him juxtaposed with some of those he would run against, like Donald Trump, they're not that far off in age. Mm -hmm. Joe Manchin, not that far off in age with the president who's an octogenarian. But what? Well, I made a joke last night on Hannity. Those shoes, my father will be 87 in a week. And to a man of that generation wearing those shoes, particularly as commander in chief in public, oh. when you're going on, uh, this is formal business. That's the equivalent of wearing your bedroom slippers outside. That's like wearing a Speedo and flip-flops oh, oh. to a funeral. Oh. So the, these elitist snobs in the White House are blithely lying. Elitist snobs? You're complaining about his footwear. <laughs> what? And did you see them? They weren't flip-flops. They were still close. So they just looked like comfier shoes. And a bunch of the photographs they were showing was from when he was traveling, which that makes sense. <laughs> it gets even more ridiculous. ...to the American people over and over again because they think we're stupid and we're not. We've cared for elderly parents and relatives and we can look at this man and see what's going on. We know dementia, we know age, we know Alzheimer's when we see it. And we look at Joe Biden and think we would not let him drive 
our car in an empty church parking lot. It's we know what's happening with him. It's sad, but... I am really happy that I am not in that person's family because, and older than her. Because if I were in her family and older than her, I would be really young when she starts trying to take away my keys. Um, because you can make your statements about Biden and his age and all that. But everyone should recognize, separate from him being president for his age, he's perfectly great. He's perfectly sharp. He could drive a car. It probably hasn't in a really long time because of his job, but um, he totally could. That's wild. Now, being able to effectively deliver speeches in front of the entire world is a different thing. And that I think you can have a fair conversation about. But when you watch that, their point about his age, which he's not, I don't know his health situation, but from the reports that get made public, he's doing fine health-wise. And no, he's not dementia-ridden and all that. He just has gotten less effective at communicating effectively. But that point is instantly delegitimized what they're trying to say about him having all those issues because of the segment that it's in. Saying, I have serious concerns about the capability, the ability to follow through on the job that he's doing when it comes to President Joe Biden instantly smush and no one cares about what you're saying if they're reasonable when you're saying that alongside complaining about his shoes and saying wearing tennis shoes comfortable looking shoes while wearing a suit is the equivalent of wearing a speedo and flip-flops to a funeral oh okay so you're not serious so I don't have to listen to anything you have to say because the real conversation is clearly if you watch extended recordings of Biden and extended videos he is definitely less effective at communicating 100%, some cringy moments, gaffes, all of that, but he understands the issues. Again, look at more than a six second clip. He obviously understands what he's talking about and uh, isn't just as sharp at delivering that as he has been in the past. And so to look at that and then concoct the narrative they concoct is absurd, especially when you're doing it alongside that segment. Now, this is what the right wing's up to, just by the way, this was Ben Shapiro I think it was over the weekend, burning Barbies because the new movie's woke or something. What the f run? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why they do this. The culture war. Why did I say that? I know exactly why. Let me tell you. Um, next bullet point. Here's exactly why. Uh, because they don't have a popular policy platform. That's why. They're pushing for politicians, leaders, and ideologies that on their face, not popular. Hey, let's cut taxes for wealthy people and not actually spend any money to address issues that face your life. Vote for us. No, instead it has to be the culture wars. It has to be the distractions. That's why. But I don't know why they're okay doing that, I guess would be a better question. I don't know how they sleep at night, spending every uh, day trying to distract the masses from the fact that the politicians they advocate for are failing them time and time again. That's what I don't get. On the subject of Fox News, Laura Ingram, the Fox News host, provided her advice to Donald Trump and DeSantis. And she's done a segment to this effect in the past that I think we covered and I find these interesting. What does a right-winger advise? What does one detached from reality right-winger advise two other detached from reality right-wingers to 
do differently with their campaign to be more successful. And this is what she had to say. Take a look. Well, it's Friday, so what the heck? I'm going to offer my free advice to both Trump and DeSantis. Both will probably be unhappy, but there you have it. As someone who's covered seven previous presidential campaigns and worked for President Reagan, I think it's time that both of you candidates remember a few things. First, to Governor DeSantis. The voters in Ohio and Arizona, Pennsylvania, they don't know you very well, but they don't want to hear a litany of Florida accomplishments at this point, as great as they are. Are they great, Laura? But here's the issue, Laura. We'll do a little response. We'll give her some stuff, then I'll respond. She'll say some stuff, I'll respond. As people get to know, as we covered previously in the show, DeSantis more, he becomes less popular. So maybe it's good to keep him not so in the public view. They want to know that you're going to be able to defeat Biden on the issue that is number one, the economy. So talk about the economy. But how is he going to defeat Biden on the economy when Biden's overseen an economic recovery that we couldn't possibly have expected? Stunning fast and effective job growth unbelievable unemployment back to record lows inflation lower than other comparable economies inflation uh gdp growth back wage growth back how is he going to compete with that i don't know what are your specific solutions to protect american jobs and bring down the price of energy smile also have fun out there don't be afraid to show your personality and ask the people what's on their minds i promise you it will not be disney or bud light and as for President Trump, keep your eye on the prize, 270 electoral votes. Everything you say, everything you do should be geared to winning in the states you need to win. This should be a 50-state campaign for America. Attacking popular Republican governors or senators in battleground states is more than unwise. It's self-destructive. Why do it? Voters in a general election want to vote for a winner, not a whiner. So please, for the love of God. And Trump's entire life in politics has been centered around whining. Stop talking about 2020. That Did she dare say? Blasphemy. Let's watch this again. <laughs> Not a whiner. So please, for the love of God, stop talking about 2020. We'll come back to that. That will not bring a single voter out to support you who didn't support you before. True. You need to grow the pot, not shrink it. Be magnanimous and be the elder statesman that Biden is not obviously capable of it. Trump elder statesman. That will reassure people. And look, your policies work before they're going to work again. The Democrats are banking on these trials and they're banking on a distracted electorate to pull Biden over the finish line. Hey, guys, let's not let them get away with that. Actually, if the electorate was not distracted and noticed the achievements more of Biden and the ways in which his policies will actually improve their lives in some very significant ways and the ways that the economy has uh, done a lot better than Fox News wants you to believe, not that it's perfect, not even close underlying problems there need to be addressed but as far as what we were expecting and within the context of the disaster we were in when biden took over what we were gonna get pretty impressive and if the electorate actually was not distracted at all and could just focus on that it would be great the distractions of trump sure might hurt trump but i would love for 
voters to know exactly what Biden has been up to with his accomplishments and not just seeing the six second clip of him having a gaffe. Um, but on the 2020 point, it's so interesting to me because if an election was stolen, because what we're seeing from some of these Republicans is, listen, I don't want to talk about 2020. And I'm not going to say that Trump is a horrible liar for lying about the legitimacy of our elections. I'm not going to go that far. But I will say that we should move on and we shouldn't look in the rearview mirror. And that's also being a coward and being dishonest because saying move on is better. True, because you're not actively lying about the election in that moment. But it actually doesn't logically make sense because sure, it's good to move on if you recognize it to be a lie, which is what you should be doing is calling out Trump's anti-democratic lies about our elections. But if you were to believe that Trump, oh, no, he's not being a liar, as Laura Ingram definitely wouldn't be willing to say, he just is talking too much about 2020, then you're saying that it would be not logical to talk about an election being stolen. No, if there actually was an election that was stolen, that should be a big concern. That would be a big conversation. It's why it's so important that we talk about Trump's attempt to actually steal an election by overthrowing a democratic process and install himself president. And so it doesn't make sense just logically, even though it sounds nice rhetorically. Oh, I don't want to talk about 2020 because listen, that's behind us. That's years ago. Let's move on. Well, if it's going to be stolen again, people shouldn't move on, but it's not going to be stolen again because that was a lie. And the lie is the important part to call out, not the timing of discussion about the subject. Because I think we should be bringing up 2020 to call out the lie. It shouldn't just fade away into the rearview mirror. Otherwise, we're going to see an attempt like that in the future. And maybe the person, Trump or someone else, will be successful in overthrowing a free and fair election. But there is Laura Ingram's uh, prescription for DeSantis's campaign and Trump's. I have a moment for you here of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez during the bonkers IRS whistleblower hearing that took place that we covered last week. But I wanna connect this clip that we didn't cover previously to a piece that came out about Kevin McCarthy and him trying to keep Trump pleased. And what she'll walk through is how Trump is leveraging his power over Congress right now. And he's calling the shots in a sense by pressuring Republicans to do certain things and they do it to his political advantage. And this is an example of how Trump is still, as I said, calling the shots and in command of the Republican Party in a very detrimental way. Even though he's not even technically in a position of power, he still is the leader of the party with how he exerts his influence again. This is a very negative reality, but it is the reality that we're in. So here's AOC uh, at this hearing. Another one of these political stunt, let's hurt Joe Biden hearings from Republicans as she's trying to inject a little sanity. Um, whether, where there actually is a set of breadcrumbs, however, is in a set of tweets and letters sent from former President Trump to several chairs, to the chair of um, the House Judiciary Committee that we see here. In fact, um, according to New York Times uh, article, which I'd like to present to the record today, President Trump's attorney wrote to the Judiciary Committee chairman urging him to investigate what he called, quote, a rogue local district attorney. And after, after that New York DA convened a grand jury that ultimately indicted Donald Trump, Chairman Jordan complied with that letter shortly after President Trump's attorney sent that letter to 
the committee, which is highly unusual, a very highly unusual act. And in fact, after that, on March 20th, Chairman Jordan, together with the Committee on House Administration, Chairman Brian Steele, as well as the chairman of this committee, wrote to District Attorney Bragg and then demanded a sweeping series of documents, including communications between the DA's office and the Department of Justice, also highly unusual. In fact, on his Truth Social account later on, Donald Trump claimed that the U.S. attorney investigating Hunter Biden, a U.S. attorney, by the way, that Donald Trump appointed, was, quote, a coward. And then in that, he then urged that maybe the presiding judge will have the courage and intellect to break up this, quote, cesspool of crime. Curiously, just a few days after this tweet, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Jason Smith, sent a letter to U.S. Attorney David Weiss and Attorney General Merrick Garland. She's exactly right and walks through, uh, completes there in the rest of the clip, walking through these examples of Trump calling out publicly to Republicans, do this, you needed to act on my behalf. And then they do it. They follow through. They do these hearings. They act in a way that is sort of like a little campaign contribution. They're all serving his attempt to get back into power. And because he doesn't right now have his hands on the levers of power, they uh, work on his behalf to do what he wants done to help his, his campaign. Whether it be trying to go after the Manhattan DA over that investigation, or trying to create this, this artificial scandal around Biden. He's corrupt too, so we shouldn't care about Trump's corruption, when of course they haven't actually proven those things about Biden. It's all just trying to serve Trump's campaign. They're all working in his apparatus to serve his campaign, because they're all terrified of his supporters. And it's really wild that, yeah, he's out right now of an actual seat of power, but he still very much is leveraging his influence where power is held. And the way that Kevin McCarthy is so terrified of Trump played out once again, as is being reported on here from Politico, inside Kevin McCarthy's secret promise to expunge Trump's record. And Kevin McCarthy apparently is seeking to expunge the impeachments of Trump. Okay. And this article writes that after that moment that we talked about where Kevin McCarthy just barely questions the effectiveness of Trump's campaign or whatever, barely. He goes, Trump's great, he could be Biden, he's great, he could be Biden, he's great, he could be Biden, but maybe is he the best candidate? I don't know, but he's great. And that caused Trump to be livid. Kevin McCarthy was like, I'm so sorry, he's the best, he's definitely the best to beat Biden and all that. And uh, it was really humiliating. Well, to make up for that, him going out publicly and apologizing, apologizing wasn't enough. And uh, he wasn't apologizing publicly, but he then turned around, tried to make sure everyone knew he loved Trump to the max and sent out fundraising emails saying that stuff. And that wasn't enough. Trump wanted more. So this apparently is the way that Kevin McCarthy satisfies that. It talks about how he wanted the Republican to rectify the slight immediately. He needs to endorse me today, Trump fumed to his staff on his way to a campaign event in New Hampshire. According to people familiar with what happened, McCarthy, after all, had indicated to Trump's team that he would do so eventually. Why not clean up the mess and announce his support now? But the House GOP leader, who has felt compelled to stay neutral during the primary so as to not box in his own members, wasn't ready to do that. To calm down Trump, McCarthy 
like he's a child, to calm down Trump. McCarthy made him a promise, according to a source close to Trump and familiar with the uh, conversation. The House would vote to expunge the two impeachments against the former president, and as McCarthy would communicate through aides later that same day, they would do so before August. Reflex. So he's going to try to do this thing to make up for the fact that he said Trump was awesome, but is he the best person to beat Biden? I don't know. Not no. I don't know. It's ridiculous. And now he has to go and try to <laughs> expunge Trump's record, expunge Trump's impeachments. And this is an example of the fear that so many Republicans, including the Speaker of the House, have of Trump. And it shows us again, this is the Republican Party now. Sometimes we talk about the battle between moderates and MAGA Republicans. The MAGA Republicans have won, unfortunately. They are controlling the party. And there are some more reasonable moderates, but they're not in control anymore. It is a MAGA party. And that's why they, across the board, need to lose, lose, lose electorally so we can, can send MAGA packing in terms of their relevance to the political discussion. Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. I will see you tomorrow.